Who knew in the moment? The premise of the show is that as you're living your life, very rarely do you realize the magnitude of a moment while it's happening. However, in hindsight, we can see all of the pivotal moments that led to where we're at. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I am honored to be with Dr. Ian Smith. Uh, Dr. Ian is an author, a TV personality, a multifaceted business gentleman, and one of the things I'm most excited to highlight in this story today is how you can have multiple interests and see how they really come together and allow you to have great exposure and opportunities in your career. So, Dr. Ian, thanks so much for being on today. Hey, Phil, thanks for having me. I'm glad to talk to you. You bet. So to start off growing up, um, you you have mentioned, you know, grew up in, you know, not a great financial position. And so something that you and your brother would do is you would sneak onto courts to be able to play uh, different sports, even though maybe you couldn't afford to pay that hourly fee. So talk a little bit about growing up and getting into sports with you and your brother. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a uh, very working class family. Um, we didn't have a lot of financial resources, but we had a lot of other resources. We had love, hard work. Um, we were a great family unit um, and we believed in education. And so I was very fortunate. You know, sometimes when people are not financially um, well off, people, you know, sympathize for their situation. But it's not always that we are bereft of good things. I mean, we, we had a great family, which was so supportive and sacrificed for us. And so in some ways, actually, uh, not being as financially advantaged worked to our advantage to some degree. It taught us about motivation and having fire in our belly. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we grew up, you know, um, back in the 70s. And, um, you know, it was tough being, you know, we had a single mom. So it was tough, you know, being children. We were twins of a single mom in the 70s. Um, it wasn't easy from a resource standpoint, but we understood the world at a young age and we learned and we love to learn. I've always been a learner. I love to learn things and I've always been curious. Yeah. And we've been, I was always a sports nut. So I always played sports, love sports. Uh, sports has been my life, still is a big part of my life. And, um, I had a very good childhood. I have no regrets about my childhood. Um, I really wouldn't do it any differently. Uh, than how it was done. Um, I think my childhood actually helped form who I am as a man. Yeah. Now, as you're progressing through ch childhood, basketball becomes a pretty big staple, but I would say you were almost more focused on the academic side, it seemed like, and basketball happened to be kind of like, you know, the other thing that you're good at. And as you're progressing through high school, uh, you are looking at the college landscape and you end up making a decision on where you're going to go play. So talk a little bit about kind of high school and progressing and then starting to realize like, hey, college basketball is going to be an opportunity for me. Well, I played all the sports um, that you typically played. I played baseball, football, basketball. When I got to high school, I taught myself tennis because I couldn't afford, uh, you know, a coach uh, to teach me tennis. I taught myself how to play tennis by watching TV, and I played on the tennis varsity team. So I played all the sports, but sports and academics were always one and two. You know, yeah. academics were always first, uh, and sports were a very close second. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I was a quintessential scholar athlete and yeah. um, I didn't compromise my academics for sports, but I also was very serious about sports. And I think 
you know, I think the young generation um, could benefit from having a realignment of the relationship between sports and education. Yeah. Uh, but I won't get up on that tangent. <laughs> um, and so anyway, basketball was my main sport. And so when I got to high school, you know, I decided I had to play one sport. Uh, it was very difficult. You, I could have played another sport. It was difficult to do that and be great at one sport and try to be a straight A student. Yeah. So I chose basketball, uh, which worked out great. Um, and I ended up getting recruited to go to Harvard um, and um, went to Harvard to play basketball. The crazy thing is that people think that, you know, when I say I play basketball at Harvard, I think, well, you've got a scholarship. You know, you, I got recruited, but there's no scholarship at Ivy League schools. <laughs> um, you have to pay like, you know, the student, you know, who's in the band. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so it was tough, you know, in the beginning financially, you know, my mother, like I said, single mom, um, you know, we took out loans like other kids and, uh, she took out loans and worked several jobs to put us through my twin brother went also, but it was a great experience and it was a great decision. And it was really what set me up in many respects, uh, for the rest of my life. And I'm very, uh, grateful to not just my mother, but to other people in the community who supported me and. There was a guy who was a veterinarian who took me under his wings, almost like my uncle uh, who had gone to Harvard. Um, and he really, you know, helped mentor me. And um, it was a great experience. Harvard was an awesome four years and continues, by the way, uh, to bear fruit in my life. Now, hearing that, you know, there there's always so many people that play a role in our life, but I think a relationship that's unique to you is having a twin brother, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people have that older sibling they're competing with, but there's something about being the same age and uh, being interested in the same things in competition. So talk a little bit about, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the competitive drive that drove both of you and maybe even certain battles uh, between the two of you. Well, you know, I don't know any other way other than to be a twin. I, we don't have siblings, other siblings. So it's just the two of us. So it's weird for me not to be a twin, actually. Um, and um, I was telling his daughter how my brother and I are basically the same person cut in half, um, not just from a physical standpoint, but also from, you know, how we look at life and how we behave, how we laugh, how we talk. We're very, very close. We're very, very similar. Um, it was just the three of us growing up. So the conditions even made us close, yeah. uh, closer. Um, and, you know, we talked several times a day. Um, and, you know, it was great having, he was a built-in competitor. He was a built-in support system. Um, he was a built-in ride or die, you know, partner in everything, whether good or bad. It was wonderful. I mean, it's a very unique and exhilarating experience to have someone who is right shoulder to shoulder with you. You're never alone. Um, we fought like cats and dogs, but we loved each other royally. Um, and uh, we made each other better because we challenged each other in everything from sports to books, girls, it didn't matter. We were constantly challenging each other and not in a negative way, but in a way that it improved, we improved each other. Um, and so I think that having a twin brother has been really, really instrumental into what I've achieved. And, you know, I love being a twin. I, when I, if I came back, I wouldn't be a twin again. I don't want to be a <laughs> just a regular sibling. It's just, it's a different feeling. I love it.
Now, of course, or across the course of your life, at some point, uh, you read this book, The Firm, and it plants a seed in your head that someday you might want to write a little bit of a uh, mystery type of a novel. So talk a little bit about getting to read that book and what it did uh, to open your eyes to what's next. So my maternal aunt, um, who did not graduate from high school, um, is was and still is a voracious reader. She loves reading. Um, and so, and I've always liked reading too, even as a little boy. Um, but as I got older, I could obviously start reading more adult books. And my aunt and I, while we were very close, we really bonded over our love for fiction and books. And so she would tell me the book she was reading and I would read. We almost had like a little private book club, the two of us. Um, and we had a little discount store in my hometown, uh, that sold really cheap books. Uh, and so we'd go there and pick up a couple of books and we read it together and compare notes. And so she recommended that I get this book called The Firm by this guy named John Grisham. And this is before John Grisham was famous. This is before The Firm, you know, was famous. It was really early and it was a little paperback book. And I'll never forget reading that book. And I was, I couldn't put it down. I mean, literally I was driving. I come from a small little town. I was driving. And when I was at the stop, at the stoplight, I'd try to take the book off my passenger seat and try to read a page or half a page. It was always with me. Yeah. When I finally finished that book and I had gone through so many emotions, it was so cathartic for me. I was happy. I was sad. I was stressed. I was anxious. It, it was everything. I said, man, I'd love to write a book that had, that would have that kind of impact on someone else another reader. It just would be feel so good to be able to create a story and tell it in a way that would uh, others would derive such pleasure and such emotion that I had. And so that really was my inspiration to think that maybe, even though I always wanted to be a doctor, let me be clear. Yeah, yeah, I always yeah. wanted to be a doctor. I knew I was going to be a doctor. Um, but even back then I said to myself, geez, maybe I could actually write a book somewhere down the road. And if I do write a book, I want to write it like this. Yes. I love it. So to your point, you you get done with uh, Harvard and then you go to med school and going to med school is no easy task. And it's something that's all consuming. And my imagination would lead me to believe that, you know, your dedication and hard work to your schoolwork, but also to basketball probably was a preparation for just the amount of time and, you know, energy that was going to go into this med school. Yeah, med school was a tough four years, I got to tell you. I mean, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, the coursework is obviously rigorous uh, from an academic standpoint, but also the commitment, the time commitment, the sacrifice. You know, a lot of my friends who had graduated, they were off on Wall Street making money or or out having fun playing in a t uh, the professional tennis circuit. I mean, people were living life. Yeah. And here I was back for another four years, not just four years, but like an intense four years of school. Uh, up, I started in Hanover, New Hampshire at Dartmouth uh, for the first two years. The advantage of that was, though, that it was such an isolated area uh, that there wasn't much else to do but study. <laughs> so there weren't many distractions. Uh, but I did learn how to ski and ski very well uh, when I was living in Hanover, New Hampshire. I, I developed, my love, developed my love of skiing living there. Uh, and then I finished my last two years at the University of Chicago, Pritzker School of Medicine in Chicago in the city. Um, and... You know, medical school was a journey, um, and it was a it was a fulfillment of a dream that I had since I was nine years old. 
Um, and so I was always determined to do it and I was happy to do it. And even when it was difficult, um, there was never a thought that I would quit mm. or do anything different because this is what I was built to do and what I wanted to do. However, I did have the belief that I could do things outside of medicine. Yeah. Like before I thought I'm only going to be a surgeon. That's all I want to do. But I also in medical school, as I got older and more mature, I started asking myself, could I do medicine and something else? Because I really have always had varied interest. And yeah. as much as I love medicine, I also wanted to do other things. And so I think it was then that I really started getting the idea about maybe doing something else uh, in my life other than medicine or in addition to medicine. So there's a couple of things I want to pick out from what you just said. And the first one I'll highlight is, you know, you use the words, I was dedicated to still doing it. You know, even when it was hard, I had made the decision I was going to do it. And I think, you know, somebody listening right now, it maybe it's a relationship and they're like, man, this is hard. Maybe, maybe I should just get out of it. Um, you know, someone's sitting here saying, gosh, I put so much time and effort into starting a business. Maybe I should quit and I should just go back to, uh, you know, being an employee of somebody. And it's not that those would be wrong, right? Sometimes relationships do need to end. Sometimes, you know, the business just isn't the right thing you do need to go. But sometimes it's like you're on the cusp of getting to where you want to be, but it just got really hard. And now you're wavering on the decision to stay dedicated. So talk a little bit about that for you and in your life. Well, I think that, you know, People have to have the mental understanding, and this is where I think sports become so helpful, yeah. that regardless of how good you are or how prepared you are or how focused you are or how much you want it, that there's going to be challenges. Challenges mm -hmm. are going to exist. And you have to be accepting of the challenges and you have to face the challenge and not shrink away from those challenges. Um, and you have to be determined to complete them. Yeah. And I think for me, um, and it, there weren't a lot of moments in med school where I was like, oh, man, this is so hard. It, it wasn't that. Uh, but there were moments like when, for example, your friends are spending a weekend somewhere and there's no way you can get there because you don't have the money and or, you know, you got exams coming up and you got to really study. So there were moments where I felt like, geez, I'm, I'm, I'm giving so much of my time. It's, this is tough to give all this stuff up. And I felt like I'm at the prime. I just graduated from, you know. Uh, Columbia, where I went to grad school one year before medical school. So I did a year at Columbia okay. to get my master's between uh, Harvard and Dartmouth. Um, but I just felt like, you know, I'm going to do this. And, you know, sports teach you that in the fourth quarter, at the end of the game, that you have to have endurance uh, to finish and you got to finish strong. Marathoners need to finish with a kick. So I think that my sports kind of kicked in. Um, to me subconsciously and made me realize that regardless of how difficult the challenge, it wasn't going to stop me. Mm. Um, I was just going to have to kind of reposition myself and get a realignment and keep going forward. I love it. That's so good. Now, the second thing that you talked about in there is having a passion for multiple things, right? And depending on who you listen to, some people say, well, don't have multiple things, right? Because then it's going to take away your energy from the one thing you could be really good at, right? I mean, there's literally a book called The One Thing, you know, focus on that one thing and get rid of the rest. There's other people, um, you know, Tim Ferriss has talked about, well, if you're good at a few things, that actually puts you in a unique echelon because if you're good at, you know, health, 
diet and writing, uh, you're uniquely equipped to write a book about that. Whereas someone might only know the writing aspect and doesn't know the health, or they might only know the health and isn't a good writer. So talk a little bit about, you know, for you juggling those multiple interests and, you know, maintaining high levels on each of them. Well, you know, when I grew up, the conventional thinking was you choose a career path, you stay in that career path for 30 to 35 years, then you retire at 65, you get your pension and you live on your pension and you, you know, help raise your grandkids. That was kind of the traditional thinking. Yeah. I was a very non-traditional thinker <laughs> and um, I did not believe that I could or should spend the vast majority of my life doing one thing. It just seemed very boring to me and very unfulfilling. For me, I liked lots of different things. And so I just made a decision that I was going to try all these different things. And, um, you know, there are a lot of flavors in life and I want to try as many as I can. And so I just consciously made that decision that despite the fact that others may think it was crazy or that it couldn't be done, I could care less. I, and I've never really cared about what other people thought. I really care about what I think. And, and I set my own goals and my own standards. And so, you know, I had several things that I like to do. And as I got further into my medical career, because there was a point in the medical career, there's nothing else you can do. It's yeah. so time consuming <laughs> and you're so tired that you can do that and nothing else. But as I progressed through my medical journey, I realized that I could start pursuing some of these other interests. Mm. Um, TV was one of them um, that came first. And then a couple of years later, I then pursued my interest in writing. Um, both things that I wanted to do starting at different points in my life before I, I developed an interest at different points in my earlier life, but I wanted to do both of them. And I didn't really feel as though that the three things were mutually exclusive, medicine, TV, and writing. Yeah. Others regarded them as mutually exclusive i thought they could be very inclusive in fact i felt they could read they could feed off of each other which is what i did and um it's been a it's, i've had an extremely rewarding career that i'm very grateful for um that i never would have thought that i was going to have if you had asked me at 10 even 16 or 18 i didn't see myself doing what i'm doing now i should be in an operating room three days a week and in clinic twice a week but this is my life. And I, the advice I give young people is, you know, you got to have an open mind. As much as I was advantaged to know what I wanted to do, sometimes that can be a disadvantage because you have blinders on and you don't yeah. see some of the other things that you'd be interested in. Luckily, I had a moment where I took those blinders off, which is very difficult to do that, by the way, but I took those blinders off and said, what else can I do that would be fulfilling in my life? And that led me into TV and into writing. I love it. So on the TV side, I would love to hear kind of the intro in and, you know, what the beginning days looked like. And I mean, you've been on so many different shows. I mean, The Views, VH1 Celebrity Fit Club, right? Uh, I mean, a bunch of big name things, but just talk a little bit about kind of the entry into that, because it's tough to be in that world. Um, and then it's tough to get on multiple avenues and ones that are as large as what you've been on. I first started with TV, not trying to do TV. And sometimes things happen that are not intended. But when I was a fourth year medical student and about to graduate, um, I decided to do an internship at the local news station because I've always loved the news. Yeah. And I said, well, before I leave grad school, med school, and become a full-fledged doctor and get crushed in the hospital, which I knew was gonna happen as an intern, 
this is kind of, I've looked at it as my kind of my last chance to kind of do something crazy. Yeah. Uh, and so I decided to do an internship at the NBC affiliate in Chicago uh, for about six to eight months. And it was fantastic. Um, I did the internship once again, not because I thought I was going to go into television. I did it because I'm a news junkie and I wanted to see how they put the news together. I was very curious. Well, I've always been a very curious person uh, and I'm curious about almost everything. Uh, and so I did it and it was great. And so that internship um, gave me a real taste of news and television and how it's done. It also gave me a nice small network of people uh, who I could call on. And eventually within a year after graduating, uh, I moved to New York, started doing my training in surgery, but also got an opportunity through a connection to appear on NBC in New York uh, kind of as a contributor, a medical contributor. And so really both my TV career and my medical career really took off at the same time, which is extremely, you know, uncommon and very unique. Uh, and that's how I started with TV. And, you know, kind of, it's one of those things where, you know, once you get into it, one thing leads to the next. I was in the news. Then I started doing that reality show, Celebrity Fit Club on VH1. Then I became a correspondent for different programs and a contributor like Rachel Ray, The View, Anderson Cooper, uh, all these different shows. Um, and then um, I started writing my column, my newspaper column for a uh, time. I wrote a newspaper column for the Daily News, New York Daily News first. Then I got a column in Time Magazine in the back of the book and the personal uh, health section, personal times. And that's kind of how my career took off. Yeah. So, you know, people hear this, right? And they're like, oh, well, you know, that's great for him. And, you know, he got lucky that these things end up playing out that way. But I think sometimes the thing we miss is the hard work, right? A lot of people could have had the opportunity to try and do something outside of just their medical practice. But it is so time consuming that the last thing most people want to do is expose themselves to another time obligation. So there's the sacrifice. So talk a little bit about just, you know, being willing to make those sacrifices. And to this day, you know, uh, before we started recording, you, <laughs> you talked about, I got so many things that are going on, right? Well, that means that there's sacrifice in some area to be able to make sure all of those balls continue to be juggled in the air. So talk a little bit about that um, in your life. Listen, it's pretty simple. I mean, you have to work hard. I mean, you know, my my grandfather and others in my life would always say there's really no shortcut to success. Um, and if there is a shortcut to success and while you may get there, that success probably won't last very long. And I think that people have to understand not only is hard work essential, but hard work is something that you can embrace. Yeah. So instead of looking at hard work, I, I try to tell my kids this, you know, work extra. Don't don't just meet the minimum. Mm -hmm. Go beyond you know, the minimum, uh, do the max plus. Um, and that's how I live my life. I love hard work. I love it. I embrace it. Uh, I've learned as I gotten older, how to have priorities and balance in my life for sure. But I like to work. Um, I like to know that my efforts, um, yielded results and it allows me to enjoy those results that much more. And so I think people really kind of have to have a true understanding and then a true embracing of the process. You have to embrace the process. Uh, whether it's losing weight, like I talk about a lot in my health books and people are trying to lose weight. You know, I say to my people in my Facebook groups who I do challenges with, I say, guys, embrace the process. Yeah. Even the difficult part of the process, you have to embrace it. The other part of it is that you have to work. And whether it's losing weight or getting a career in television 
or you know gaining more muscle mass you have to put in the work yeah and that's just that's it i love to do it i've always done it and it has rewarded me magnificently so somebody listening right now uh is is saying exactly what you're you were kind of conveying and that is you know yeah but that's so far down the road you know i mean i I've tried this before and it just hasn't worked. I haven't lost the weight. I haven't gained the weight. I haven't been able to change things. So falling in love with the process, I think, you know, a common misconception is that delayed gratification, the gratification is the end goal. And I think there's a way to mentally train your brain to find the gratification in doing the small steps to get to the end goal, opposed to being like, oh, well, I will be excited when, or I'll be gratified when I lose the 60 pounds. It's like, well, no, you should find gratification. The fact that today you showed up today, you adjusted your diet ever so slightly to make progress. So maybe hint on that, or, you know, talk a little bit about that for people. I think that that's part of the embracing the process is that even if you're doing something that's difficult, and even if you have a hard time seeing yourself getting beyond the challenge that is in front of you, if you try to enjoy what you're doing, if you try to truly buy in to the process, then it becomes much easier because you're not in this oppositional state whereby your mind is saying, I want this result, but what's in front of me is too difficult and I can't get over it and I can't do it. And so you have this kind of opposition between what your goals are and what you know you need to do to get to your goals. And I say, and I so I think to eliminate or reduce that oppositional situation, I think you have to say, this is what it takes. And I'm gonna like this, maybe not as much as the results, but I'm gonna like it in a way that, you know, is much better than me saying, oh, I gotta do this again or complaining about it. And that's the key. Um you know, if you're training for a marathon and you have to do those, you know, those there's a very specific way you have to train for a marathon and you got to start, you know, and do those 10 mile runs and 40 miles run. You got you got to look at it and not say, oh, man, I got 10 miles run today. This is going to be a killer. Instead, you got to say, geez, I'm going to tackle these 10 miles a mile eight. I'm going to do an eight minute mile if I can. I mean, you got to have that kind of approach, I think. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. Love it. So after TV is taking off for you, um, also the writing side is uh, something that you once again tucked away and you know you want to pursue that. And you've written a bunch of books. Some of them are health related. You did get to write your uh, mystery book that has a little bit of the uh, Harvard tie into it. So talk a little bit about, you know, the early days of writing and then just the progression for you. When I was a grad student at Columbia in between undergrad and medical school that year, I was in New York at Columbia. I decided I was going to actually now try to do my writing um, and get it done before I went to medical school. And I had actually been writing some in college. So I had some of the story, a lot of the story actually already kind of written. Um, and I tried like had to get an agent. You have to get, you had to get an agent and you still do really. So you have to get an, a literary agent who will take you on as a client. And then they in turn will look at your work, help you edit your work and get it in shape. So then you can try to sell it they can try to sell it to the publisher. And I, you know, I tried probably over a hundred agents. Um, and I only got one. Wow. Right. And this this lady who I got lived on the Upper East Side, 
uh, a very major, she's like a, a socialite. Um, it was a very interesting combination, me being this young black kid from a small town, her being this very upper crust, well-connected socialite in New York City. But um, the two of us, she picked me up and said, hey, she read my letter and said, hey, this sounds interesting. Um, and so, so that really um, started me writing and believing I could do it because this literary agent who was well-established believed in me. Um, and that book was The Ancient Nine, which is now published, um, you know, and is being developed to become a TV show. But um, it started with a lot of rejections, um, writing career, as many people's writing careers start. Um, but I also was doing health. You know, I was writing for Time Magazine and one time. So it's interesting. When I didn't have any name or any platform, I had a hard time getting an agent, but I got an agent. Uh, I had all those other agents who kind of had turned me down or just didn't answer my query. Um, but then when I was writing a column for Time Magazine, a publisher came to me and said, hey, would you, we, we love your column. You want to write some books? So it was like, yeah, of course I want to write books. So it was just kind of, um, it was kind of sweet that, that I had tried so hard years before <laughs> and I couldn't get to the publishers. And now the publishers were coming to me yeah. and it just kind of all came together. I love that. So, you know, in regards to that, you're exactly right. It's a difficult industry to get into. And, you know, fortunately, like you mentioned, you know, you were able to do some other writing and publications that had good notoriety. But, you know, even after you write a book, then you start realizing how few people get best selling books, right? I mean, I think the average is like 180 books are sold you know, on, on a book. There, there's not a lot. So to get to best selling stats is a whole new level. So just talk a little bit about that for you and the progression of your books and how they've been able to, uh, you know, really top charts. Well, I think that almost every writer would love to have a New York Times bestseller. It's kind of, it's the Oscar for writers. Yeah, right. It just is. It's an Oscar for writers. And you know, I wanted like anyone else, but I also understood how difficult it was. You look at the, I would read on Sunday, the bestsellers list, and they had these huge names. I mean, John Updike, Maya Angelou, uh, Toni Morrison. I mean, these big, big names, John Grisham. Yeah. Um, and you just say to yourself, geez, how can I ever, you know, ascend um, up the ladder to reach where these guys are? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, the way to do it is you put one foot in front of the other and you keep walking. And so I started I started as an unknown, very small writer, but I was very determined. And I had learned through sports about perseverance and resiliency and not giving up. And that's how I started, honestly, going to small towns like Wichita, Kansas, um, and getting on TV where I could and talking about my book and encouraging people to buy it, doing a book signing that had 10 people at it. Um, <laughs> You know, so I started literally, you know, from the beginning uh, and then, you know, just being consistent and steady. I tell my kids, be consistent. Mm. If you want change and progress, you can't be good one week and bad the next week and back on. You got to be consistent. Uh, and so I was consistent. And every year my book came out, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and then finally, I had my first, not just a New York Times bestseller, it was a number one so you yeah. making the list is great, yeah. but getting a number one is like, that's it. Yeah. Game over. So, you know, <laughs> uh, winning the best picture, right? You can be nominated yeah. for the best picture, which is really awesome. 
Yeah. But then to actually win the best picture is game over. So I got my first bestseller and I've had nine to get all together. I think, I mean, I'm kind of, I think, you know, I've, I, I've, my 24th book is coming out this year, uh, the Netflix diet. So I kind of, I'm getting older and my numbers are circle. I don't keep track of the numbers, but I know it's at least nine. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty awesome. And And every time you make the list, it's exciting. It never gets old. Um, and it never gets old to walk into a bookstore and to see your book sitting on a shelf and your name on it. Because as a writer, you spend so many hours, weeks and months alone, you know, in the dark, music playing softly in the background at your laptop or desktop, you know, trying to create, trying to create. And um, it's a wonderful career and a wonderful experience. Yes. So that segues us perfectly into the newest book. And the newest book is The Metflex Diet. So once again, uh, coming out and be out in April. So talk a little bit about the premise of the book. You know, I mean, I think people here got diet. Gosh, isn't there a thousand of these? And the answer is, yeah, or more. But uh, talk a little bit about, you know, the premise of your book. And then let's dig in. Well, I think that what people need to understand is there's no one diet that works for everyone. And the reason why there should be a lot of diet books is because you have to find the book that works for you. I mean, you got to, maybe the food's too expensive. Maybe you don't like the food. Yeah. Maybe you don't like what it's asking you to do. Maybe the exercise is too intense, whatever it is. That's why one program doesn't work. And why I've written so many programs over the years. Some people will say, I love your shred book. That's my go-to. Someone else will say, I love fat smash. I mean, so people really find, you know, the book that they love. The Metflex diet is very different than any other book I've written because it deals with a concept called metabolic flexibility. Okay. And what that is in a, in a nutshell is it's the body's ability to be able to burn whichever fuel it sees at a given time. Mm. The two biggest fuels for the body are carbs and fats. And you want your body to be able to burn carbs if you're eating carbs and to burn fats if you're eating fats. Unfortunately, a lot of people are metabolically inflexible, mm -hmm. which means that they can't, they can't burn both of them efficiently. They may burn carbs well and not fats. They may, they may burn fats well and not carbs. And so a lot of people struggle to lose weight, not because they're not eating well, not because they're not exercising well. And they say, I don't understand why I can't lose weight. Well, people don't realize they may be metabolically inflexible. Mm. And so the Metflex diet is a six-week program that teaches people how to improve their metabolic flexibility. And this is the last thing I'll say before you ask your next question, which is, think of it like this. A hybrid car has both a battery and gas. Mm. When the battery wears down, then the gas kicks in and the car can still keep going. A gasoline-only powered car only has gas. And so when the gas tank is empty, the car stops and you got to refill with gas. The hybrid car is metabolically flexible. Mm -hmm. It can go from this fuel, battery, to the other fuel, gas. The gas-powered car is metabolically inflexible because all it can use is gas. I love that analogy. That's perfect. So I hear you say, you know, it's going to teach people to be more flexible. How, Dr. Ian, how do I figure out if I am flexible already or not? What type of tests or what type of body results or diets am I looking at to try and navigate this process? That's a great question. Unfortunately, there is no real test. 
like a blood test <laughs> or a breathing test that will say you are metabolically inflexible and this is your percentage of flexibility. Unfortunately, it's not there. Hopefully one day we'll develop. But research has shown that most people are metabolically inflexible and that they can improve their metabolic flexibility. And by the way, three major ways, exercise, um, intermittent fasting, and something called cyclical, cyclical ketosis, which is basically keto, but you cycle in and out of it. You don't stay on it for a long period of time you spend about five days a week in it, and then two days you load carbs and you keep alternating it. So that's called cyclical ketosis. But those are the three ways that people, three of the ways people can improve their metabolic flexibility. Now, as I hear you say that, you know, there's power in doing something that shocks the system uh, because we as humans, we like to get into our routines and our patterns. But unfortunately, if my body gets into a routine and a pattern, I can start, you know, maybe coasting, which seems like it would be an okay thing, but maybe things aren't operating or performing as efficiently as they could if I gave them a little shock and they had to remember how to do things. So talk a little bit about why that cyclical ketosis could be healthy or beneficial for somebody. We're trying to train the body to be able to do well when it ingests and sees carbs and to do well when it ingests and sees fat. So the body needs to be trained to be able to recognize both of those uh, macronutrients and to be able to process them and process them well. And so the body responds, the body grows in many ways by being challenged. Yeah. Um, muscles grow by being challenged. The only reason why you grow a muscle is because you've worked out with the weights or a resistance band you've broken the muscle down, you've injured the muscle and you have, you've, you've created micro injuries, small injuries, not for you to say, oh, it hurts, but your muscles are, are micro injured. And then in the repair process, after the workout, your muscles start repairing. And when they repair, they grow back bigger. That's the process of hypertrophy. They enlarge. Well, the body in general needs to be challenged. In order to grow, you have to be challenged. In order for the body to be more metabolically flexible, it has to be challenged. And so this program um, allows people to be metabolically flexible and be challenged in a way that's doable. I mean, you know, we have a Facebook group and I encourage people listening to join us. It's called Metflex Diet, the name of the book. Um, and I'm in it. I do Zooms. I counsel, you know, people on, on the program. Um, but it's from people all over the world who are doing it together. And let me tell you something. People have lost up to 20 pounds. I, I always have my books. I get, I have a certain number of people who get to try it early mm. so I can get feedback. Yeah. And I take their feedback and incorporate it into the final draft. But people have lost up to 20 pounds in just six weeks on the program. And not only that, they're losing inches. I mean, eight inches, 10 inches from all over the body. So it's a, it's a pretty rewarding experience. Yes. Now, you said it's about six weeks. So what is the magical thing about six weeks? Is that a long enough time where the body starts seeing changes, but it's short enough that we can stay committed to it? Uh, what, what's the magic behind the six-week number? I think you just got it. I mean, there's nothing magical in the sense of it has to be six. But yeah. when I look at programs and what I'm asking of the programs to deliver uh, to those who are doing it, um, I ask myself, you know, number one, how long does someone really need to get good results? Number two, how long could someone really take this program uh, and stick to it? Because that's important. The stick to itness, or um, you know, the compliance is really important. Uh, and then I also, um, you know, 
ask myself, okay, so um, the length of time that I'm going to be giving people to do this, is it overwhelming from a psychological standpoint? Yeah. If you say to someone, I have a 12 week plan for you. Oh, they're going to be like, no way. Because, you know, the instinct for us, particularly Americans, is we, want, we want everything faster. Um, and that's a good and bad thing, by the way. But yeah. the bad side of that is that we don't give the processes time that really need time. Um, and we ask too much of ourselves in an unrealistic way. And that leads to problems. So six weeks is the right number to give people enough time to get into the plan and get going. And it gives people enough time in the plan to get results. And it also is something that people find doable. Six weeks is doable. Yeah. Now, as you were talking about the intermittent fasting, you know, I mean, really over the last, I mean, you would know better than I, but I would say at least the last five years, it's become a lot of a lot bigger of a conversation piece. Um, now, my now, guess is though, when you talk about the shock factor, a person could do intermittent fasting for almost too long where maybe their body gets used to that and it would be helpful to shock it and get multiple meals. Or is that incorrect? Is it once you've trained yourself to be okay with just these, you know, four to six hours of eating time, then you're good. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, intermittent fasting is a great concept. Um, and people should embrace it. Um, I know there are different studies every week. One study says it's good, <laughs> one says it's bad. It's like blah, blah, blah. Intermittent fasting um, is one of those programs where it's not going to hurt you. So if nothing happens, it's still not going to hurt you versus other programs that actually can hurt you. Yeah. Um, but I have found IF personally uh, and through my groups on Facebook and on Instagram, I have found IF to be extremely effective and very productive uh, for the types of results that people are looking for. Um, and I think that people have to understand that IF is a is a challenge to your body. Yeah. Um, and it's important to challenge. And by the way, they're different. We don't have time to get into it, but they're different types of IF. You know, in the Metflex diet, I talk about the three of the major ones. Time-restricted feeding, where you take 24 hours and you break it up into an eating window and a fasting window, and you just yeah. keep rotating that. Then there's the 5-2 method where five of your days are pretty normal eating. Doesn't mean you go crazy like 4,000 calories, but pretty normal eating. And then two of your days are 800 calories or less. And then there's the alternate day fast method. And the alternate day fast method is one day of normal eating, the other day of 500 calories, normal eating. You just keep alternating. So there are different types of IF. But in general, um, IF is one of those programs where um, you have to be committed to it in order to see results. Um, because you are trying to change the physiological state of your body. And in order to change your body's physiological state in some regard, then you need to have consistency uh, and discipline. I love it. Now, to your point, as you start with the intermittent fasting, one report says this, one report says that. Like, I feel like as we've talked, my, my feeling towards that is both are right. It's the person that made the difference. You know, like both reports probably are at some degree, like, you know, we'll say 80% true, right? There's always going to be the outliers, but it's like, they probably both have a lot of merit. It was to your point at the beginning though, bodies react differently, different bodies, you know, one's going to process that really well and they're going to see radical change and another person might do the exact same thing and be like, wow, that was hogwash. You know, <laughs> that didn't work out at all. It's very difficult for the layperson to understand all of these medical headlines. Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult for the journalist, the general journalist, 
reporting or writing these studies that come out, um, which, is, which is the reason why I got into doing it is because there's so many people don't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so they end up unfortunately spreading misinformation yeah. or they end up missing important information that should be something that we all talk about. But um, I think that when you look at the IF, um, you know, one study says this, the other study says just the opposite. In some respects, you got to use like common sense. Yeah. There's nothing you're doing with IF that in 99% of cases is going to be deleterious to your health, right? Now, you may not get all the results from IF that we pretend, yep. right? But you're not going to, no one's going to say you're increasing your risk for cancer, yeah. for infection, for inflammation. No, it's not. So um, as far as looking at the studies, um, you know, also not all studies are equal. Yeah. Right. This is this is why I got into medical journalism to be able to try to cipher, decipher, and and cipher out kind of which studies are valuable, incredible, and should be reported versus those that shouldn't be. Um, and so you got to look at the study and see whether or not it's of any value. And if you don't, if you can't do that, and most people can't look at the study or understand the study, then you got to trust someone um, who's an authority on it. Um, yeah. You know, and believe them. And you know, I've tried to spend my career trying to build trust because I think that people need information, um, but they also want to, you know, make sure it's reliable and credible. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, nine New York Times bestsellers gives a little credibility to a guy as well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Now, uh, to round out our time, and by the way, this book will be able to be found, I would imagine, everywhere that books can be found, correct? Online, in person, wherever you're trying to get something. It's everywhere. And in fact, I'm actually the one who narrated the audible, the audio book. So you can actually buy the audio book too. If you just want to listen to it, um, that works. You hear my voice talking to you. And we all know that that is pleasant. So you'll want to check that out. <laughs> the The last thing I want to highlight today, though, was during President Obama's administration, uh, he asked you to be a part of the council and, you know, really kind of trying to help change, you know, what culture has how, or I guess what culture we've kind of, you know, bred in, in the U.S. today. So talk a little bit about just getting that nomination and being a part of that council and, you know, I guess some of the neat things you're able to do there. I, I got a call one day and it was an unknown number um, and I don't answer unknown numbers. And so I ignored it. Then the call came back again <laughs> and I answered it. And uh, the guy said that he was calling from the White House Office of Personnel Um and I didn't believe it, by the way. And I thought it was one of my friends playing a joke. I said, no, no, this is the White House. And I was like, what? Were you seriously? And so after I got over my my, my disbelief, um, he said, you've been nominated um, to be on President Obama's uh, Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Okay, what do I do? And so, you know, you got to go through this very, very, by the way, this very rigorous process yeah. um, that you have to go through. Even as a council member, I wasn't even working in the White House I had no legislative or governmental duties other than to be a counselor. But anyway, it was a very lengthy process. But um, so it was it was crazy and fun to get the nomination. And then the work was great. I mean, I got a chance to sit next to and talk to and brain trust with some of the biggest names in sports. Some I had admired, like Billie Jean King, since I was a kid. Um, Dominique Dawes, uh, you know, the, the gymnast, um, everybody, football players. Uh, Drew Brees yeah. uh, was on it. Um, Carl Edwards, the race car guy. Chris Paul, the basketball player. Grant Hill, the best. I I bet we had the best council uh, 
at the time uh, of, of any councils as far as the collection of yeah. eclectic and successful people. So it was a great experience. Uh, we got to meet the president several times, the first lady. Um, it was just really, it was a great, it's one of those moments in your career where you feel like, wow, this is all this work mm. is being recognized and it pays off. And so I have to say, and I've done a lot in my career that I'm proud of, but being nominated and then serving um, on the council with the, for the president um, was definitely a career highlight for me. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ian, I want to say thanks so much for your time and just highlighting, you know, the pivotal moments that have led you to where you're at. Are there any other moments you'd like to highlight as you kind of reflect on your story? My brother and I were so intense on being successful since we came from very little financially and we yeah. just wanted to be successful to, to help our family out, to help ourselves out, and then to help our future generations. And we really believed that you had to work extra. Mm. And I was telling my kids that at five o'clock in the morning, we would go from our house to the school and we would run hills in the dark uh, at the high school while everyone else was still sleeping at home. And we would be there so early. This is the day they used to live. You had a, a milk truck <laughs> yeah. uh, and we'd see the milk being delivered. Um, and we'd be out there, you know, huffing and puffing, running uphills, downhill, up and down, up and down, up and down. Then we'd finish, jump in the car, the little beat up car we had, would drive back home, would change and then go to school um, and join the rest of the our classmates, the rest of the school. But we always felt like that extra work made a difference. You know, you got to remember that while you're sleeping, someone else is working. And I don't want to put everything in a competitive context, yeah. but there, life is, there are a lot of competitions in life. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, and obviously you, you can decide how many of those competitions you engage in and how you engage in the competition, but life is competitive. And that taught me a valuable lesson. You know, we were very successful on the basketball court and people thought that it just came naturally. It didn't come naturally. Mm. You know, while you were in your fourth dream, I'm running up and down the hill. And by the way, we never told anybody. No, yeah. we didn't brag about it. We just did the work. And I think that that was a great moment for us. My brother and I, to this day, reflect back on running those hills um, in the dark together. That, that, that meant a lot and it still means a lot to me. I love it. I love it. Well, brother, thank you again uh, for everything. Guys, go check out the new Metflex diet book. And uh, Dr. Ian, the only promise you got to make me is uh, when the next book comes around, we'll we'll do this again and uh, we'll get a highlight that book and uh, continue to pump that out there. Hey, that'd be great. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Ian Smith, spell the doctor out, I-A-N Smith. And I have, if you don't like diet books, you don't need a diet book. I have four novels that are out. The fifth one comes out in May. Uh, and they're a lot of fun. So you can go to my website, drian.smith.com, spell the doctor out and check out some of my novels if you love reading fiction. My man, appreciate it, brother. All right, man. Take care.